Chodesh Roy Lehev is Chaver, he's struggling through his word. Chodesh Roy Lehev is Chaver, he mentioned Nibra Chaver, but the Mutai Tamoy. The source of the connection that evolves between two people is a result of their overlap in their beings, that they created the same. You're like one, what's the ultimate expression of humanity, of your being? This person should have this image in its entirety, which means that he, he becomes a Tzelem Elohim. And when you love your friend who's created with Tzelem Elohim, then you become the Tzelem Elohim. When you love your friend who's a Tzelem Elohim because he's a Tzelem Elohim, the only reason that you can, only way you can love him is when you find that commonality, that overlap between you. So if what you, pulls you towards him is his Tzelem Elohim, that requires you to have a Tzelem Elohim. That's what creates the connection. In other words, the connection that people share is based on the oneness that they have. The oneness means an overlap. It can't be in body because bodies are separate. It must mean something larger than life. What's larger than life? The person's Tzelem. When two people have the same Tzelem, so then they are the same, therefore the love rests between them. So I just want to expand upon this again. It's, it's, I'm not saying it's so complicated. And there are a few problems that we have to definitely deal with and iron out. But the basic process is as follows. There's an interesting way that, that, that life is described in terms of a continuum in Judaism. The, the, the fascinating point about Judaism's description with the beginning of life is that it calls, calls the womb the grave. Such a horrible way to refer to it. I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't really publicize that in maternity places. Um, because it seems to be an odd way of describing something which is what we look upon as the one, the source of life. You know, you, you, the womb is what we automatically associate with the place where life is formed. And um, it's called the grave. Or later, the opening of the womb is sometimes referred to as Pesichas Akeva, the opening of the grave. So there, 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 there's a lot of interesting talk about the progression from the child as a fetus, child as a born entity, and the person post mortem after they die. But the perspective definitely should stretch across all those periods of time. When we look at ourselves, we can't only look, up, look upon ourselves as after birth and before death. We have to look at ourselves before birth, after birth, and then after death. And what's interesting about the description in the words of the Gemara of the period before birth is that the fetus in the mother's womb is described as being in a state which is akin to the Garden of Eden. The state of absolute and total spiritual bliss. He's described as, 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 as being in a state where he can see from one side of the world to another. Which means that the, the, the dimension of space no longer becomes an issue. His perception is all over. That he sits there and he has, he has light, he has 
he has, he has, he has angelic teacher that imparts to him all the words of Torah. It's almost the this, 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 this state of absolute and total connection to the Creator in the deepest possible way. Connection both in terms of, I suppose, emotions and in terms of intellect. Strange to speak of a fetus in terms of intellect. But it seems that the entire wisdom of the Torah exists in the fetal stage. Now, when birth occurs, so then it becomes a little bit of a tragedy because that state is completely lost and the rude awakening of the child entering into this world is in fact a huge trauma where the child leaves its state of comfort its state of bliss its state of absolute connection to its creator to be thrust into a world where everything is turned upside down everything is turned upside down and all of a sudden the child is thrust into a world which is the ultimate world of restriction and limitation, a world of physicality. Where previously I was living in this world of no boundaries, one world, from one world, one side of the world to the other side of the world. And now all of a sudden the child becomes restricted by the dimensions of space and time. Yes, so it's, a very, it's a very traumatic experience for the poor little baby. And that's interesting where the custom of the Shalom Zohar developed, of having a party on the birth of a child, a male child, on the first Friday <coughs> night, is the source in the Gemara describe it as a a a meal which comforts the child over its loss of the world that it experienced. There's a form of mourning that the child goes through and needs comfort. So what happens is, for us, what's interesting is that that pre-birth experience remains a distant leaves an impression on the deepest recesses of a person and ultimately the rest of his life is spent trying to regain that state of paradise that he experienced before he was born but obviously on a deeply buried subconscious level but really that's what drives him so he's, he's driven he's driven constantly he's driven constantly to pursue that elusive elusive pleasure that elusive sense of connection. You follow? Devon. Do you, do you ever regain that spiritual cognizance? So the, the process of spiritual growth is slowly but surely, incrementally returning to that state. But now, in other words, now it completely transforms our perception of what Torah learning is all about. Until now we understood, let's say, before the introduction to this idea, that the Torah learning was something that is superimposed, is implanted into you. This perception of self is that inside, internally, there is the wisest man that you've ever met, because he knows all the Torah. And that the process of learning Torah, the study of Torah, is a reawakening of a dormant Torah that exists within inside. There's legends or perhaps anecdotes about children that are born and they have an intuitive mastery of Torah. Okay, I haven't seen any of them personally, so I don't know. But it doesn't matter if they write or wrong, true or false. The, the idea is, is a valid idea. That we have an internal Torah and the process of learning, there should be a sense, when a person learns, of resonance. There should be a sense of homecoming. Torah should not feel like this foreign body that's being implanted into my being. It should be very much a sense of reconnection.
there should be something intuitive about the whole process. <coughs> I don't know if that's true of everyone. I've, I've heard from numerous people and it's hard for me to act as a barometer to measure that because I was never far away from Judaism to feel that was a homecoming. But from people who I've heard from who are, who, who are distant, very, very distant from Judaism and experimented with a variety of different spiritual schools, I've often heard from those people when they land up in yeshiva that there's something which just fits well. There's a sense of, mm, I've come home. Which, is, uh, which would f- kind of be a, explained by this notion that there is an intuitive, deep, deep, deep in the recesses of being an awareness of that, that, that spiritual grandeur. But for our point of view, in terms of relationships and friendships, it becomes very, very pertinent because it means that friendship in its deeper sense, connection to a, a larger, larger group of persons in a very, very powerful fashion where your care, that your love becomes like your love of yourself. It's not just that you have an interest in the person or that if it's not inconvenient, then you'll connect to them or that you enjoy their company. It's something way deeper, way more profound than that. It's a kind of friendship where your life and their life, it's, it's, it's a big discussion who's worth more. Self-sacrifice. The kind of acts of friendship which people speak about. You know, he was a true friend. So that kind of friendship requires a deep sense of overlap and identification which seemingly can only be achieved within the realm of spiritual advancement. Would that also only be applicable to Jews and Jews rather than Jews and non-Jews? So that's what's going to become discussed over here. That, that obviously, based on the person's spiritual makeup, the overlap can really only reach its fullest extent when it's like and like. And also because Jews are constructed with different nuances, so there'll be certain people that you connect to more than others. But there'll be an overwhelming connection to everyone to a certain degree, and there'll be an overwhelming connection to humanity to a certain degree. Cheney. How do you reconcile the notion of um, a friendship being founded on overlap of identification um, versus the earlier notion that we spoke about? Excellent point. That uh, a friendship founded on difference is more powerful than a friendship founded on... Fantastic point. Fantastic. Well, the Maral previously said that a friend is more powerful than... The bond is more powerful than that of a brother because a brother, you are similar. (laughs) Whereas a friend, the reason why the bond is so powerful is because you're different. Seems absolutely contradictory what he says over here. Yes? You're following? Okay, good. Let's, let's dw- dwell on that question. Let's not answer it now. I'd like to go a little bit further. But before I go further, I'd like to just raise a major issue that I don't understand in this whole presentation. Practically speaking, practically speaking, let's say the basis of friendship, the way it seems to be that we're extracting from the morale, is this overlap of this highly, highly evolved self. And when you have two highly evolved selves, so then you can connect to the place which you couldn't connect as being mere human animals. That works well if you're both highly evolved. But what happens if you're highly evolved and the other person's a monkey? So it's only going to work with people on the same footing. (coughs) And it's very difficult to say. Because it would mean that well, there may only be a few individuals that you could connect to, whereas it seems that the mitzvah of after is all-encompassing. 
Meaning, what about the people that I look down upon and don't get along well? Because they, not because I'm arrogant, because they are undeveloped. So I can't connect to them in their level because they are mamish vil dechayet. No, it's, it's a problem. What's that? So I'm going to leave that also as an unanswered question, if I may. Yes? Good. So I want you to think about that. But that's a fundamental... We're trying to... The problem we began with is the Maral set up this kind of this continuum and he said that, well, you can't love God without loving man. And if you hate man, you're not going to love God. He said that. And then like, that caused me to kind of well, reconsider my whole <laughs> spiritual journey. Which I'm happy to do myself. Just all these other people get in my way and they're so annoying and irritating. So that itself was like, come and kind of bothered me. And they haven't reconciled that either. They haven't reconciled that either, right? But we're developing, a, a definitely we're developing a very different approach to the notion of how spirituality and relationships connect. Okay? But we're far from getting there. So I'd like to try to push a little bit further in the text and see if we can get any light. Obviously, this is a process. We can just go on a tangent a, a little bit to describe the process, even though we have before. I just want to reiterate it. That any study of Torah is a journey and a dialogue. The, the way the learning of Torah is described, the learning of the oral Torah, is it's always described as darkness. It's described as darkness. It's not described as light. Because the process of study of Torah, and you feel it in every aspect of Torah, and you feel it very powerfully in Gomorrah, is that you start learning it, and nothing makes sense. And everything is difficult. It's not difficult, it's confusing, it's just just, frustrating. You feel like you're going nowhere. The words of the Medrash, in in the Medrash Tanchuma, in in the parish of Noach, he... The, the, the time of the Medrash, he actually describes that as a process of learning. He says, The nation that walks in darkness, those are the learners of the Talmud. In other words, that's not a mistake in the way that the mechanism, the, it's, not a, it's not a pedagogical error that the Talmud becomes this place where you get into it and then you get confused and you get lost and then you're walking around fumbling in the dark that is the purpose but it says afterwards roll or a godel they saw a great light the process of any learning is the process of this world this world this world this world this little gap between prior to birth and Eternity, this little, small, very, very, very narrow bridge, this narrow, narrow bridge is, is typified by what's called Vaihi Erev, Vaihi Boiker. And it was evening, it was morning. But that's counterintuitive. Surely it should have been morning first and then evening. That's not this world. This world begins at night. Every process begins in the dark. Every process. You always start off in the dark and you move gradually towards the morning. And then what happens is you reach the morning and the sun gets brighter and brighter and brighter and then it sets and you're in the dark again. And you're in the dark and then you're in the dark and then you're dark. But at the darkest, darkest point suddenly you see a glimmer of light on the horizon. And then it starts to get light again. It gets light and it gets light. But then at the highest point of light the light starts to just say, that's it. That's called 
the process that we go through. We go through a period of darkness, it always begins with darkness, and then it goes towards light, and you see light and you go, now I can see, and then you lose sight, and it becomes dark again. And then you say, now I can, and, then, and this is a process, that's called Vahir Vahibuike Yoim Echad. That's this world. This world begins in darkness, goes towards light, becomes dark again, goes towards light. And that's why when the, the eternal world is referred to, it's referred to as a world where it's always light. It's a different world there. There's no darkness, there's no need for darkness. Over here, the only way we can experience light is through the contrast of darkness. The deeper the darkness, the more blissful the light. The darkness are the questions, are the groping for an answer, the light is the answers. So if a person has no questions, so then he can't experience the light, he's not in the, he's not in the process. So in the process of all learning, there's this, there's this dialogue that you go through and you, you ask your, yourself questions. The Gemara doesn't make any sense, the Maral doesn't make any sense, this part of the Torah makes no sense, that part of the Torah makes no sense, this part of my life makes no sense, this event makes no sense, nothing makes sense. And then what happens is, as you go further, all of a sudden, oh, okay, okay, and then someone asks Akasha, and boom, oh, I don't say anything anymore. And then you, oh, okay, okay, and then someone asks Akasha, I don't say anything anymore, and oh, and that's life, that's life, no, we've all experienced it, no, we've all experienced it. You go through periods and everything fits into place and you understand why this happened and you understand this and, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's all gone. So that's, what, that, that's, that's, you have to understand that Torah is a reflection of reality. The process that we go through intellectually, emotionally and physically are all the same process. Or when a person starts a new skill, it's not dark. If you want to start to learn to, now you'd like to engage on developing your skills in underwater hockey. It's not going to be darkness. Do you know how hard underwater hockey is? <laughs> Do you know what big lungs you have to have? It's not posh it. Underwater, and just manipulating the, the, the puck underneath water with currents. It's not posh it. It's not posh it. And your snorkel gets filled with water and you land up choking. It's not simple. It's darkness. Slowly but surely you start to master the skill of that highly advanced form of human achievement. And then it becomes light. And then your snorkel gets filled again and it's dark again. To understand, it's any process. It's a physical process, developing. You look at a child. Well, a child, isn't that what a child is? <coughs> a child's born, born into darkness. Perhaps light. So we've said before, but maybe it's worthwhile saying it again just to reiterate it, is that there's two ways of reading the Hebrew alphabet. There's Aleph to Taf. When you start off with the Aleph and it progresses to the first letter to the last letter. And there's Taf to Aleph. It starts off with the last letter and progresses to the beginning. Those are the two ways you could, you could read the Hebrew alphabet backwards or you could read it forwards. Now, when you read it forwards, you're reading it in the way that was given. That was given is it starts with the Aleph, which is one. And it progresses to the last and the most concretized letter, which is Taf, which is 400. In other words, from the ultimate unity to the, the, the ultimate detail. So when the, 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 we view the alphabet, which becomes an analogy for the way that things are transferred from Hashem to us, they start off with Hashem. Hashem is one. But the oneness becomes disguised, disguised in the multifaceted presentation of the world around us. You have to struggle to find the uniting theme. So struggle. 
in the source, when you go back to the source as one, it's Aleph. But eventually it gets to Taf. When we are born, we start at Taf and we have to work our way back to Aleph. So we read the Hebrew alphabet backwards. In, 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 the word, in the wisdom of the sages, the way they do this is they sometimes expose this idea through the reading of words based on a, a swapping the letters in the alphabet back to front. So instead of, if a word is written with an aleph, you read it as if it, as if it was written with a taf. If a word is written with a bet, you read it as if it was written with a resh. If a word was written with a gimel, you read it as if it was written with a kuf, etc. Right? It's called atbash gardak. Yes? You following me? So now, there's an interesting thing about when you think about that, and we're going to expand upon it, I think, very shortly. Oh, let's go a few lines. Okay, if you've got that idea in your mind, Atbash Gardak, just hold that idea in your mind. I'm going to read a few more lines, and then we're going to refer back to that idea. It says the Maral. Ki kola Torah. Kula. The entirety of the Torah. The entire Torah is the way a person can reach the level of what's called Tzilim Elokim, an image of God. In other words, the Torah is there to build the ultimate human being. In every aspect of his being, in every aspect of his emotional, intellectual, and physical life. Now, how does it do that? How does the Torah construct that magnificent creature? Well, the Kacha Mitzvahs essay, the Torah, Hemramach, Keminian Eve Adam. That's why there are 248 positive commandments which correspond to the limbs. The, the, the parts of a person's body, the Avra Adam Hemtamoy, and the way that your the parts of your body make up your structure. In other words, that it's not that the, there's some type of like nice fluffy vote about the as many mitzvahs are there are parts of the body. But rather as the verse says, which means flesh and skin and flesh you clothed me with. Meaning that uh, the way you ask it is to say that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, were they naked or clothed? Naked or clothed? Originally they were without clothing. Without clothing. Which is the skin. Seemingly we call that naked. But of course the mistake is, no, of course they were clothed. What were they wearing? They were wearing their bodies. They were wearing their bodies. They didn't have to cover themselves up because they were already covered. What were they covered with? They were covered with their bodies. That's the idea. The idea is that the body is a covering. It's not you, it's a covering. The problem is after things were quite confused. But the body is a covering. It's not the thing, it's the thing around the thing. So what's the thing? The thing is, is the, the essence of man, the Tzalem Elohim. But how do you allow that thing to express itself? The body has such a powerful hold over us. It seems to find... So how do you... 
the mitzvahs guide you how to express it. So for example, there's a limb that's clothed in an organ called the heart. The, the heart as a organ is that which creates the pumps the blood around the body. In a way you can call it the central organ in the body. The one which makes the whole thing, the whole machine work. Even though from a different perspective it's the brain. But let's focus on the, the, the heart is, is what creates the physicality of a body. A person can be brain dead and have his heart pumping. He's still physical, physically alive. So the heart is the pump. It makes it, it's the genera it's a source, it's the it's where life is. It's the life force. It's the source of life force. So when you describe a person's heart, the heart becomes a clothing for where the person is reality. The mind is above. The brain is above. It's a controller. It's not the thing itself. It's above. So the the mind becomes the seat that that, that clothes the neshama. The heart clothes emotions, the nitty-gritty life, the nitty-grittiness of life, the where I am, the experiential component of life. The, the mind, the head, the brain clothes the neshama. But on a much more detailed level, every limb corresponds to a different aspect of different mitzvahs. For example, there's a limb which is it's a big limb in the person's quality sets, the limb of the Torah limb of a person, the study of Torah limb of the person, which which is somewhere here they say it's in the cognitive realm, and it's clothed by the brain. There's 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 a another limb, it's called love, it's clothed somehow by the heart. It's clothed, but Hard ideas, but essentially there's 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 an entire beneath the surface structure of a spiritual being that's encased in a physical being, and the goal of the Torah is to reveal reveal from within the internal nature of it, to bring out the Tzelim You see the Tzelim let's say through the mitzvahs when a person is willing to not eat a food based on no nothing to do with any kind of health concerns doesn't eat the food it's 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 mummish it's it's organically grown long veined pig rice grows on the back of a hog um it's, it's the healthiest thing in the entire world for you but you don't eat it because it's not kosher that, that's something which is supernatural because it doesn't make sense within the physical world so you see a supernatural dimension to yourself. When you give your food to someone else, because of Chesed, you see something supernatural, because your body says, eat, it's yours. So there's a supernatural dimension introduced through the mitzvahs. That supernatural dimension shows how the body, with all its physicality, can rise up to becoming a spiritual entity. Let's go back to Atbash. Atbash. Now, we know that there's a lot of discussion about the name of Hashem. Enormous amount. The name of Hashem is spelt with a Yud. It's the first letter. A He is the second. A Vav is the third. And another He is the fourth. 
Now, obviously, those letters have got deep, deep significance. Why is the yud? Why is it followed by hey? What is the function of the rav? And each letter has a specific connotation associated with it. For example, it's interesting. Yud in Hebrew indicates the future. If you want to make something future tense, you put a yud in front of it. But philosophically, yud always represents thought, which of course is the future. It hasn't happened yet. It's just an idea. Graphically, it's a very small point which looks like a seed, because that's the, what an idea is. The hay is the receptacle. It receives it. So Gemara discusses that the shapes of the letters are also significant, and the gap at the top of the hay and the big open bottom are also relevant, because it receives the yud, but then what happens is it falls out the bottom. There's nothing to contain it. In other words, it's a very, it's a very flimsy container. And the Gemara says the only way it can get back is through the top, the opening on the top, which is, which is that's a separate discussion about how, how chiva works and how when a person wants to change, he can't change from the platform where he's located. He has to go to somewhere else in order to advocate a change. That's a different and unrelated for our point. But you see there's a yud and there's a vav. A vav is the conjunction. A vav is a conjunction. Um, the conjunction is, it's also called, interestingly enough, the Vav is considered the letter of truth. Because the truth is the notion of combine, the combination of what occurred with the way it's expressed. The person is truthful, something happens, and he expresses with veracity, with, with integrity, that, that was what ha- there's, there's a connection between the source and the continuation. So that's why Vav represents both the conjunction, the thing that connects one thing to another, and also it's straight, and it's also the letter of truth. And it connects you to a hay. Now there's two hays in Hashem's name. There's an upper hay, it's called, and a lower hay. But both are receptacles. Both represent two different dimensions. There's this, there's this constant give, receive, give, receive. So the first, the first let's say, in, in the way it's referred to is, is the male and the female aspects of Hashem's name. The Yud and the Vav obviously correspond to the male aspect and the Hayes respond to the female aspect. Male and female are always described not as men and women. A man can be, have a female component, a woman can have a male component. In the Jewish view, there's no such thing as men and women. There's different powers in the creation. Much more closely related to what's called Yin and Yang in the, in the Eastern philosophy. There's powers which have different descriptive properties. There's recept- powers of receiving and powers of giving. Powers of form and powers of matter. So they say the relationship between form and matter is the relationship between giving and receiving. The clay is the form. The clay is the matter. The potter creates the form. So the potter gives and the clay receives. So the potter's male and the clay is female. You're following. It receives the form in its matter. The matter was just this, this, this amorphous mass. It becomes something. But the truth is, the form without the matter is nothing. It's just an idea. So man will be correspond to the idea, whereas woman will correspond to the practical application. Man will be the seed, and woman will be the one that carries a baby and gives birth to it. Man will be chokhmah, the seminal idea which gets the bigger picture, the gestalt, and woman will be bina, which breaks that idea into its all components parts and finds a practical application. Man will be the cloud, woman will be the prat. 
That's all those interactions, male and female, male and female. So the name Hashem is essentially divided up into two parts. There's the first part and the second part. The second part is the realization of the upper part. It's almost as if there's a higher part and a lower part of Hashem's name. Kiviyachol, Kiviyachol. Speaking about things that we don't know what we're talking about, but just to give you a sense of what's there. Now, what happens is, in Atbash, if you read Hashem's name Atbash, the first two letters, they are the top part, and you read them backwards as the bottom part, from man's perspective, so then the Yud becomes a Mem, and the Hay becomes a Tzadi, and it's spelled Mitzvah. Because that's what a Mitzvah is. A Mitzvah is finding the Shomayim, the Kvot Shomayim, the, 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 the spiritual root to our beings, but starting at the point of our bodies and moving upwards. So a Mitzvah is a revelation of Hashem from down below to up above. So when the Ram- Maral says, Ulekach ha mitzvah's essay b'toyah heim ramach kemini eivre adam There are 248 like the limbs of man. The eivre adam heim tzalmoy And that's your form. That's what he mean, suggests that that's the direction he's, he's going in. And, yeah. and the hay that stays in mitzvah, that's the, the commonality between you yeah. and God? The vav and the hay, that's the expression that doesn't differ. That's, that's, in other words, yeah. Okay, I don't know. I have to think about it, but it's just opening up your, your mind to a different dimension. Because again, what we're trying to do, we're trying to shift ourselves to perceive in a different way. So we're trying to do. We're, we're bodies, but we're bodies with different, different layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers. And layers. Yeah. Yes, okay. On the same theme, you go from restriction to perception. You can't see in the dark, so you're very limited. You can only go. You can't. You can't. You can't plan a journey in the dark because you can't see where you're going. When it's light, and then you become freed. What's the difference between the Salam Alokim, which was supposed to try and reveal, and um, this inner world, which we might have not seen, supposed to keep within? Great question. 